It's the year 2014, and Sphero, a nascent consumer robotics company, has landed an 11-minute meeting with Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney. Mr. Iger walks into the meeting and drops big news. There is a new Star Wars movie secretly in the works that will be releasing in 10 months. The movie features an adorable new droid that Iger believes will rival R2-D2 in popularity. It's called the BB-8. Iger asked the Sphero team if they'd be able to build BB-8 for Disney to license and sell as a toy upon the film's release. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the business, but many questions exist. Sphero has never wanted to be called a toy company, so can it build a BB-8 without losing sight of its vision for being a robotics platform? Designing, manufacturing, and holding inventory for the world's number one toy is also no small feat. One small mistake could mean missed opportunities at best, and the company going out of business at worst. It's a bet-the-firm decision for a fledgling company. What would you do if you were the CEO of Sphero? Welcome to the Maven to Change podcast. I'm your host, Kunal Sarda, and our guest today is Paul Barbarian, chairman and former CEO of Sphero, the world's leading STEAM-based learning company that uses robotics to help kids learn how to code, play music, and appreciate science and arts in classrooms around the globe. To date, Sphero has raised $148 million from the likes of the Foundry Group, Mercado Partners, and the Walt Disney Company, to name a few. Paul? I should tell you, I've been trying unsuccessfully to get my wife to buy me a Sphero for a few years now, and I'm really hopeful she'll finally let me after listening to this podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get into the story of change at Sphero, I'd love to start with your own incredible story of change. Paul, tell me, how does someone go from playing handyman in their dad's real estate businesses at an early age? to scaling and selling their first technology company at the age of 28, to leading a kid's educational robotics company. I thought I had a hard time explaining to my folks what I did and why I did it. How on earth did you end up being a children's tech executive? I think my adult life is a reflection of my childhood. Growing up, I always was fascinated with business. So my father came to the States when he was like 28 years old. He didn't speak any English, but he quickly learned. And uh, by the time I was born, he, he kind of was beginning his career as an accountant, as a CPA, and also as a young entrepreneur. His view was that real estate, commercial real estate in Southern California was a good investment. And so he would find small businesses that had a building associated with it. He would buy the small business, didn't matter what it was, and he would run the business to pay the mortgage so that when the business finally went away, he had a property in Southern California fully paid for it. So we spent our weekends going out from business to business to business that we owned. And we had like some really bizarre businesses. We made hand lotion that went into medical supply kits. We made uh, liniment for professional racehorses, you know, to rub down after their workouts and stuff. We made vitamins for weightlifters. We sold used pinball machines. I mean, we had all kinds of businesses. And so on the weekends, that's what I would do. I just follow my dad around and I would, you know, make boxes or clean a warehouse or pull weeds or whatever task my dad had me do. I love my dad immensely. I mean, he was a wonderful human being. 
And so I looked up to him and I wanted to become an entrepreneur, but I wanted to do it my own way. And I always wanted to start something new. And he wasn't into starting things. He wanted something that was proven, that had like, you know, he could see the value on the day he bought it. A real business on day one. A real business on day one. It doesn't matter if it was doing a hundred grand a year, if there was a building associated with it, and even if it was a small building, he would be fine. But I wanted to do the sexy sales and marketing type stuff and to build something out of nothing. And I was fascinated with technology. I didn't have a particular affinity for any type of business. I just had an affinity for business. I can be, you know, doing video conferencing technology, solar panels, or robots for teaching kids how to code. Paul, a few questions on this amazing journey of yours. Number one, you kind of glossed over this, but you bootstrapped your first tech business to sell for $16 million at the age of 28, which is incredible. But then you go on and really swing for the fences and scaling a venture-backed business in Raindance, which was essentially Zoom if it were a bit ahead of its times. As a manager, the question I have is, what is the number one thing you had to change in your management style or communication style as you compare operating a bootstrap business to a venture-backed business? What change was the most painful for you here? Uh, my style of leadership is really around consensus building. So the way I get my decisions done is I put a ton of energy into convincing someone else that my idea is right. And then the, there's two of us, and then we go out and get the third person, and then there's three of us, and we have the fourth person. And so I, I build by consensus. When you're running a bootstrap business, you basically have to get the buy-in of your partners, whoever they may be. If you're an individual, you don't have to be anyone's buy-in. You just do what you want to do. And then when you have a venture-backed business, you now have this board of directors, this group of investors who, even though they may have put in uh, a little bit of money, they still have this ability to control the company uh, officially as the board of directors and specifically the role of the CEO. So you now have to convince two groups, like whoever your co-founders are, that your decision is the right decision. And then you have to present that decision to the board and get them to agree or to give you that latitude to, to run that business. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was much younger. The nature of board dynamics and entrepreneurship wasn't as refined as it is now. If you were young and you were an entrepreneur, they would say, oh, you don't have the experience. At the time, I always felt like I was being judged for my age and my lack of experience. And it was challenging because not only did I have the board of directors question my ability to grow and lead a company, but I also had my partners that were also, you know, kind of challenging, right? Like if they had a different opinion, you know, they're, our, they're your partners. So you engage with them in a meaningful discussion. It's not like I run a business where it's my way or you get out. I think the the biggest technical change, it just it just was more work, right? Having a board of directors, a lot more energy being spent into consensus building with a lot more people yeah. involved. Yeah, that makes total sense. Question number two on this, though, and this is a really personal as part of your journey. While you were running Rain Dance, you had a really traumatic experience. You were involved in a horrific car accident with your wife and child in the car. What followed were months of uncertainty about what life would look like afterwards. I wouldn't dare touch on what such a trauma does to your personal life, but would you mind sharing how this experience changed your approach to running a business? Did this alter in any way how you decided to choose where you spend your time professionally, whom you surrounded yourself with as a team, and how you manage your team in any way? Well, what's interesting when you go through a, a personal drama like that, 
you immediately start looking at yourself as not as a, as an individual, but as I guess a tool that is necessary for the business to run. Right? The business needs the tool of a CEO. Prior to the accident, I was you know it was my company, even though it was public. You know, I, I was the founder, and and so it really was mine. The burden of leadership fell primarily on me at the time. What happens is, is when you have something like that, you start looking at your life and what are the jobs that you're doing. One of the jobs is, yeah, I'm the CEO of this company. One of the other jobs is, is I am the father to my daughter and I am the husband to my wife. And I am the person responsible for making this physical body whole again because <laughs> my body was pretty messed up at the time. And so you just start, start having to set your own priorities. And then when you start seeing that um, the company needs this role, and I wasn't capable of doing it because these other functions in my life were more important. You know, from that point forward, I always looked at the role of CEO as one of that's distinct from me as Paul Berberian, right? The company needs a CEO. I am a candidate for that role. Even if I'm a founder, I am a candidate. If I'm doing a good job, I'll keep doing a good job. But if I'm not doing a good job, I'm going to go out and find someone else who can do a good job because I don't want to be the person responsible for me not making money or my investors not making money. I want to make sure we have the best person in the job at all time. And so it was a dramatic change in my life personally. It was a moment in time where I matured in my understanding of the role of CEO. Oftentimes, startups will see transitions in their CEOs. Um, whether it's a, a young company that the job is too much pressure for the CEO or it's not enjoyable or they don't necessarily have the skill sets, their skill sets are more suited towards product development or sales or something like that. A lot of times it's a, it's a very difficult transition because so much of the company is tied to the individual's personality. Like this is something I created, but it was really powerful for me to say like, I'm okay creating. I don't need to hold on to my creation for my entire life. That was the biggest transformation for me. Yeah, that's interesting, Paul. I've, I've had some friends that have gone through hopefully not as traumatic experience as yours, but I've seen people swing in one of two ways. One is business becomes a lot more personal for them where they start thinking about their legacy and that business being their life's work or the other being business becoming a little bit less personal for them where they're able to separate themselves from the business and really be practical. And it sounds like you, you swung in the latter direction there. Yeah, and it's, you know, it manifests itself today, right? Because um, we have a new CEO at Sphero. We spun out another company uh, that was uh, a project that I've been personally nursing inside of Sphero for almost 10 years now. And it's now an um, independent company called Company 6. They just came out of stealth mode today, by the way. Uh, Congratulations. So I'm not serving as CEO of either of those companies. I'm serving as, as uh, chairman of the board where I get to have strategic input. And I'm fine with that. Yeah, recognizing that the business is bigger than yourself is is definitely a big uh, learning. Thanks for sharing that. On hopefully a lighter note, and much like some of the other guests I've had on the show, I know your parents have been instrumental in your development as an executive, as you mentioned before. One of the things you've said previously is that your dad always injected a heavy dose of realism in how he looked at the economics of the businesses you were running in the early days. I'm sure you've learned some of that realism from him, but you've added a little bit of your own flair to that. You say that in business, one must operate with, quote, an unnatural sense of optimism for what can be created and an unnaturally realistic view of what has been created. What do you mean by this? And how do you balance this sort of schizophrenia as a manager running a business? 
I think if you're going to start a company, you have to, to believe in it passionately. Like every business I've started, even the ones that have failed, when I started them, I thought they were going to be the biggest thing in the world. I mean, I just, I just had that, I guess, unrealistic optimism. Because I think you need that kind of energy to take a blank piece of paper and create something from nothing, right? I think you need to believe so passionately in something that you can create. Uh, because if you don't have that passion, it's going to be hard to convince others to join your team. It's going to be hard to raise capital. It's going to be hard to get suppliers and partners and vendors to, to give you what you need in order to have that creation moment. And it needs to be sustained because you will early on hit many, many roadblocks and you have to break through those roadblocks to deliver on what you believe to be you can create. But at some point, you have to do a check-in with the real world. Like, okay, we've been at this for a while. How are we doing? Were our assumptions that we had at the beginning of our incredible optimism about the market and opportunity, are those bearing fruit or are they less than you know, what we originally thought? And so the unrealistic level of realism is your check-in to gauge your enthusiasm, to either validate that your enthusiasm early on was justified or for you to take stock and perhaps alter course, either dramatically or, you know, slight course correction. I think you have to have those two opposing views always going on in your mind. The angel has to say, you're, it's wonderful, everything's fantastic. And the devil has to say, if you're miserable, you're going to fail. And you have to make that reconciliation in your own mind. You know, to me, that's always been the way to stay sane. You know, at night, I worry about everything that can go wrong. And in the daytime, I dream of everything that can go right. And then, you know, the afternoons is when everything kind of gets wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> I know this ability to be realistic about the present, but optimistic about the future is central to our story of change today. And we'll come back to that shortly. Going back to your, your accident, you eventually decided to step down from Raindance. And after a few projects, you'd be with the founders of this company called Orbotics as a mentor at Techstars, one of the best business accelerators in the world. And within weeks, you decided you want to join the company. Had you gone to Techstars as a mentor already knowing that you were looking to dig deeper with the company? Or was it something else that happened that pulled you in that direction? you kind of have to go back a couple of years. I had two back-to-back failures and I was starting to question my ability to be a founder, CEO, leader uh, of tech companies. After taking a tech company public. <laughs> After taking a tech company public. So a good friend and mentor of mine, Brad Feld, he basically said, you know, you're looking for your next gig. Why don't you? Techstars is starting up. Is Techstars is only like three years old then. And I was a mentor of the very first class. And, you know, I knew the founders of the program and I believed in it passionately. And he said, why don't you just get really deeply involved in Techstars? You know, what else are you going to do this summer? And back then, Techstars was still operating in an abandoned gymnasium in a basement of some old office building in Boulder, Colorado. So it smelled like a locker room. But there was a lot of, you know, startup passion there. It was a very unique place at that moment in time. So I decided to, and I worked it like a job. And I said, I'm going to get involved. And if I see a company that I'm interested in, I'm going to go all in and help them out as best I can. 
that's where I met Ian and Adam, uh, the founders of what became Sphero. And they were two tech founders that wanted to create a product that linked your smartphone to a robot. They didn't really know what market they were going to go after. They didn't know what they were going to make, but they were excited to do it. And I firmly believe that, you know, the smart devices that were emerging were going to become way more powerful and we'll have links to the physical world. And somehow being in that in that business was going to be good. If I had the right technical talent, I could help find the right business model. You see a huge market opportunity with this novel technology, the offline and online world coming together, strong technical founders, and your, your passion for sales and marketing, as you said, probably helped quite a bit in you seeing the ability to add value to the business here. So Arbotics graduates tech stars with you as CEO, goes on to double down on robotics and it becomes one of the first companies to really consumerize robotics on the heels of a lot of new technology that's getting packed into iPhones. And you raise a ton of money. Robotics has two consumer robots on the market that are smashing hits. They're called Ollie and Sphero. Things seem to be going fairly well, Paul. Tell me, where was Sphero as a business right before it makes an interesting decision to join another accelerator program? What was going well and what is keeping you and the board up at night? We made the decision early on to make robots because Ian and Adam were passionate about robots and controlling a robot from your smartphone was just cool. That's it. We were one of the first companies to use Bluetooth to con connect to a piece of hardware that wasn't a speaker. We were part of a very early program on Apple to do that. Controlling the robot was was really cool, but we had to decide what kind of robot. Ian said, well, the ball is the perfect robot, you know, because Ian was a young roboticist, was steeped in the world of different form factors and mimicking you know, nature with robots. And the perfect form was perceived to be a ball. And so that's what we chose. We didn't raise that much money up until that point. In 2014, collectively, we had $18 million into the company. In 2014, when Ollie came out, we did about 18 million in revenue. So we were growing nicely for the amount of money we were raising. But we didn't know what you would do with a robot ball. We didn't say we wanted to be a toy company. As a matter of fact, you weren't allowed to even use the word toy within mm -hmm. Sphere. We wanted to use this as a way to show how the machine in the physical world would interface with our digital life. And we wanted to be the company that was being that linkage, that interface. And so when we started the business and started launching that product, it was more in our minds a technology demonstration. We could have easily gone into industrial robotics or, or commercial robotics or something like that. We were exploring many different market opportunities. But People just wanted to buy a robot that you could code. And so we put a lot of energy into our SDKs and APIs. We held, I don't know, like 100 hackathons. We did a partnership with AT&T. But the hardware was continuing to sell more and more. And it was kind of a novelty item, selling in Brookstones. And you know, we didn't want to sell it at Toys R Us. We didn't want to be cheapened by that. We kind of had this weird view of the market. And we were researching a whole bunch of different industries of where to take our technology. And we were getting pulled in the direction of toy. But then we said, you know what? The revenue is good. And we were starting to say, we need to pick an industry. We can't say we're not a toy. And all you see on Twitter is, you know, pictures of kids playing with our products. We heard about this new partnership that Techstars had with the Walt Disney Company to do this accelerator. When I saw that, that announcement, I said, hey, if we're serious about toys as one of our industries that we could go into, we should see if we can get involved with the Walt Disney Company because like 20% of all toys in the world have some sort of Disney IP attached to them. And they know the toy industry. 
there was a lot of resistance in the company because there was a huge faction that didn't want to be a toy company, that we were too highbrow. And the typical economics of joining a program like that were pretty expensive, right? You had to give up a lot of the company. So it was an incredible amount of internal debate around whether or not we should participate in the program. So we put together an application for it, but it was kind of a hostile application. <laughs> because, I mean, it was, it, it just wasn't a great application because we weren't sure if we wanted to go. It was expensive. It was going to be a distraction. We already were doing 18 million. We weren't, you know, two people in a garage trying to figure something out. We got accepted and there wasn't a universal agreement for us to join. And so I dragged my feet and then finally it came down to like the last 24 hours. And I remember one of our board members, Mark Solon, who also was deeply involved with Techstars at the time. And he goes, hey, Paul, you know, I'm an investor in Sphero and I'm involved in Techstars. And he goes, I can't promise you anything good will come out of it, but it's a risk that I would take. And then I had a conversation with David Cohen and he said, look, if you're not happy with this gig, I'll give you back your equity. And so I just remember saying, screw it, we'll, we'll see what happens. And that's how we made the decision. But it, was, it wasn't an easy decision because we didn't know if we wanted to be a toy company at that time. That uh, balance between the optimism of the future and the realism of the today was, was what brought the conflict to life. Yeah, your revenue is pulling you in the direction of being a toy company, but the optimism is to be a platform that uh, future robotic companies can be built on top of. I'd imagine that was creating quite a bit of conflict. Exactly. And it plays out, you know, as the story continues, it plays out that some of our fears were well-founded. Let's get right to that then, Paul. So we've now arrived at our story of change. Sphero is now at the Techstars Disney Accelerator. As part of the program, you get to meet with Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, for about 11 minutes. Now, mentor meetings with amazing executives are par for the course at Techstars, and largely they're about mentors helping you think through challenges and scaling your business or helping you find interesting opportunities. But this meeting with Bob goes a little differently. Can you tell me about what happens in this meeting with Bob Iger? So it was July of 2014. And everyone has their 11 minutes. And, you know, we're like the fifth company to go out of 10 companies. And, and then we meet with him. It's the second day of the program. And he knows all about us. It's like, okay, it's very unusual for, you know, the largest entertainment company in the world, CEO, to know about some tiny startup out of Boulder. Like, why does he know everything about us? And he goes, hey, I want to show you something. And he pulls out his iPhone and he starts showing us pictures on his iPhone from the set of Star Wars, The Force Awakens. When we look at the pictures, we just see, you know, desert scene and this little character, this little ball with a head on it. It's a puppet, you know, it's because it's all puppeteered. And he goes, you see that? He goes, that's going to be the next R2-D2. And he goes, that looks a lot like the product you're already selling. Do you think you could make that? Paul, you've just been told by the CEO of Disney that he's interested He's asking you if you're interested in a strategic partnership with Disney for Star Wars The Force Awakens, the first Star Wars movie since The Return of the Jedi, released in 1983. I know you expected good things to come from the Disney Accelerator, but how big of a holy shit moment was this in terms of the magnitude of impact as you thought about it in the moment? No, we knew it was big. We knew it was pretty big. We were so excited when we came out and we said, what did we just see there? And we started like trying to write, you know, draw exactly what we saw. And we were secretly trying to write on the whiteboard and stuff because don't tell anybody, only four people in the Walt Disney Company know this. You know, we were secretly trying to figure it out. And we're like, yeah, we can make that. 
that's what we make. But we didn't know like how it moved. He just had a still photo. We don't know if it was CGI, if it floated with movie magic. You know, we didn't know what the real world physics would be because the physics required the head to fall backwards when it moves forward, not go forward. If they made the movie magic so it didn't operate with real world physics, we'd be screwed. We couldn't make a realistic product. But we said, yeah, we can make it. Paul Iger just pulled a shock and awe on you. And mm -hmm. I understand that you go to the drawing board and we spend the next hours MacGyvering basically like the top hat that you place on your Sphero product. It turned out three months earlier because we wanted to sell accessories to Sphero. And so we already figured out how to put a, a little top hat on top of the ball while it was driving around. So we already had the technique. So literally by that evening, we had a prototype. And you get that shipped over to Iger to see if it bites as the vision for how the BB-8 robot could work. He bites. And then he gives you approximately 10 months to productize and mass produce the robot. Does that sound about right? It does. Can we just talk a little bit about what you did there in the early conversation with Iger? You essentially faked a BB-8 to get Disney to say yes. But the, the question I have for you as a manager is, at this point, you had a prototype, but you didn't really know, I would imagine, in the really early days, how well that would mass produce if you'd be able to get to the scale that Disney would need you to get to. The question I have is, did you ever worry about going over your skis and what you were promising to Disney? And how would you balance your optimism versus the risk of overcommitment in these early days as you were trying to get Disney to, to go all in with Sphero? I think we were pretty confident that we could make, we could make something because we already made something. We already made you know, a couple hundred thousand of them. We didn't know if what we would make would be representative of the character. I didn't know if I could make what the character was. I like, you know, if you look at it, go, no, that's not the character. That's, that's a cool toy, but it's not the character. So there wasn't a fear that we couldn't actually manufacture. There was a fear that we didn't, we didn't have enough information to know if our efforts were actually going to deliver on the results. We did run the risk of very early on of being a distraction for the entire company because there was no money in this right now. This was just a promise. It was just a dream. We didn't have a commercial relationship. It literally took months to, to iron out the commercial relationship. So we were expending a ton of energy before we even had a contract with Disney to actually do this and the rights to do it. So I want to pause here to ask you about strategic partnerships. These kind of partnerships can really be a double-edged sword for companies. Strategic partnerships are notorious for pulling companies in directions that they may not line up with the long-term interests or the vision for the business. How did you make sure going all in for the BB-8 was the right move for the business? What kinds of conversations were you having with the board about it? Was it a no-brainer once you had an interest from Disney or was there more debate about whether you should do it at all? I think everyone wanted us to do it. <laughs> As we got more information, the excitement level went up. If you recall from when I said a little bit earlier, like we didn't know what type of company we we're going to do. When we went to the Walt Disney Company, you literally you were forbidden for using the word toy in our company. <laughs> you were forbidden. You could that word could not come out of your mouth. We couldn't use it in any press. We couldn't do it to anyone we talked to, and we didn't want to sell to any toy stores because toys. The range of pricing for toys was was so vast that when you had a product like ours at you know, 130, $140. It didn't fall into the category of the of the Barbie doll. We go to Disney, you know, the Bob Iger says, could you build a toy that looks like this? And I go, well, we don't build toys, we build robots. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the messaging that was coming out. And I, so what happened was, is the thing we were saying we didn't want to be for the first four years 
we went through a transformation and had to switch that entire conversation saying, okay, we're going to be a toy company. You had to restate the company's vision and mission on the fly. On the fly, on the fly. And it was hard. It was a hard sell. We had to get everyone convinced that we're going to be a, a toy company. And then we had to figure out, well, okay, you got one toy. You got the Star Wars toy. What else are you going to do? Question for you there. I, I'm sure you've heard of the why, what, how framework for how a company should articulate its mission, starting with the why, which is why you exist. It has to stay constant while the what you do and how you do it can change. What was staying central? What was staying constant on the why as you thought about this massive change on the, on the what and the how? The why that was staying there was primarily centered around robotics, that we felt robots could, could entertain. Because clearly, Sphere and Ollie were robots, and they were entertaining. They weren't toys, but they were entertaining. We are an entertainment company uh, that uses robotics to entertain and technology to entertain. And that's what we tried to anchor upon as we took on this new effort with Disney, that we were a robotic entertainment company, a connected toy company. Uh, But it was all about the technology and having the most amazing technology that was affordable. So we're we're bringing this incredible technology to kids. That kind of became our new mission is is to inspire that happiness and creativity through these products. And so the relationship with Disney made a, a ton of sense in that framework. Mm-hmm. So now you've rearticulated a new vision for the business as using robotics to bring joy to people and being a toy company doesn't sound all that bad with this new vision in mind. The R&D team gets to work on designing the BB-8, but you also realize that your team is woefully understaffed, I'd imagine. So you doubled your team in something like three months. How are you managing culture through this intensely hypergrowth period? I've heard from many managers that they're simply reacting and not really thinking about long-term during such times of intense change or growth. How did you help the team keep sight of the bigger picture as you were adding 2x the people to your roster in such a short time? So companies that go through hyper-growth have a couple of things going for them. It's, it's incredibly fun because there's an external momentum to the business that is unbounded, right? So when you go through a period of hyper-growth, when you have that kind of growth, it's almost impossible to maintain uh, a sense of culture. But that external momentum kind of creates its own, its own culture. It manifests itself inside of the company, like growth at all costs. We must deliver to the world. This huge sense of commitment and passion to deliver to the demands of the world. Traction drives culture almost in that in that short term. Yeah, short it, it, that's, that's actually right. The, the traction outside was just, was just driving this desire to deliver everything, no matter what. It doesn't even matter if we were making money. We just needed to just ship the product. That became yeah. the, the driving force. And you have to understand... Unlike a normal product launch, this had really hard deadlines, like contractual deadlines. Like they are launching on this date, the movie hits here, things go on sale there, and it's driven by the Walt Disney Company. Yeah, so I want to talk about that because 10 months is a very short time, but it's also a very long time for many things to go wrong to slowly derail this massive project where timelines are completely driven by, by external parties. What new kinds of meetings and KPI were you getting on the books to make sure that you had a pulse on everything from R&D to manufacturing to everything in between? What needed to change in your day-to-day operating style to be able to hit this external, very aggressive timeline? We started forming tiger teams, meetings of core people. I was incessantly you know, walking around, meeting with people. Just You have to understand, we were in 
25,000 square feet. It was easy for me to you know, talk to everyone seven times a day. It was very product centric. We had to come up with some amazing marketing assets, but the, the machine of Walt Disney Company will create global awareness. And the fact that there was this new character, BB-8, that was released with you know some previews and stuff, there was, there was so much pent-up demand that we just had to nail the product. The product had to deliver on the hype of the movie. Intense focus on the product, what it did and how it behaved and the software and the graphics and the detail on the robot itself. There was a lot of physical challenges there, but we just put a tremendous amount of energy. It was just such a laser beam focus on it. It just overtook everything. So, Paul, Um, talk to me about this laser focus. You've alluded to this before. Sphero had a business to run all this while, didn't it? You probably had to continue producing, marketing, and distributing the Ali and Sphero products to existing distribution channels. They were probably marketing product and support teams continuing to support the existing business while you were getting ready for this new product launch. Now, there's two ways in which I've seen companies falter at pulling off massive product launches like this. One, you have the same people context switching between the old and the new and burning out, trying to keep the ship afloat on the existing products while trying to get this new one to the market. Or number two, you create separate teams with different agendas and the teams working on the present might feel a bit alienated or second to the team working on the future of the business. How did you balance this during the 10 months at Sphero leading up to the launch of BB-8? So it was very much the latter. We segmented the company pretty cleanly, even all the way up to leadership when we joined the Disney program. So I took myself and the two founders and I said, the three of us are going to go do the Disney thing. And we've got an apartment in LA (laughs) and those guys spent the entire time there and rarely came back. And I spent four days a week for 13 weeks working out of the Disney accelerator offices. So immediately we segmented the business. The COO, Jim Booth, became the equivalent CEO at the time. He took over running the the day-to-day operations. And I would participate via some video call from time to time. But really, all decisions were to be handled by him. When we decided we were going to make the BBA, we then physically created a a locked area of the building that a small team would work on the initial product design for to build up the initial concept of what we would create. As the project got larger, as we got closer and closer to launch, and you know, that locked room became bigger and bigger, and pretty soon the whole company was in the locked room. <laughs> but it, the segmentation helped. I actually think that's a pretty smart way of handling a, a transformational process within your organization is to create a dedicated team let them go off and figure out if it's going to work and get the foundation there before you start bringing in other people. Because early on, you just need to make decisions. You need to have people who where clear lines of responsibility are defined. And then as you gain progress, you can start bringing other people in to expand that. That worked well for us. So you've decided to completely separate your teams to make sure there's folks that are focused on running the existing business while these Tiger teams are making sure this opportunity is moving along before other pe- bringing other people into the fold. All of that works out. It's now Force Friday on September 4th, 2015. The product is ready, manufactured, and on the shelves at Disney stores. I understand that you were at the Disney store in Times Square in NYC on the day of the launch. Tell me about that. What did that feel like? It was pretty incredible. I was in Times Square. There was this incredible line to get into the Walt Disney store on Times Square. I mean, literally wrapped around the block. It was, I don't know, there's 10,000 people in line. It was crazy. And it was midnight. The store was jammed. And 
our team is in the store. We have I don't know, a thousand units there for sale or some crazy number of units in the store. And they knew it was going to be the number one item. So they started handing out coupons. Like you could buy two, you can buy two to people in line. And I was supposed to be in store just to watch it. And I pulled out one out of my pocket and started driving it by the line. And it just, people went crazy. And I was mobbed. And I felt like a rock star. And I think there's a picture of me like in the middle of this mob, you know, with a big smile on my face. And I remember just thinking at the time, like, yeah, this is my 15 minutes of fame. Right? Your celebrity this is moment. My celebrity moment. It was pretty exciting. It was a really cool moment to experience as a, as a CEO to have created something that brought to life a piece of science fiction that was beloved and I could be part of that story. And sure enough, the doors opened. They were sold out before like a third of the line was able to get through. It was an incredible, successful launch. And from that point forward, we couldn't make them fast enough. Coming into the Disney Accelerator, you had about a run rate of $18 million. What did it look like after the BB-8 launch, Paul? From September 15th, to December 31st, we did like 120 million in revenue or something like that, right? And we peaked at making 100,000 BB-8s a week Incredible. in our factory. So that is 20,000 units a day, which is about 2,000 units an hour. Well, the, the company goes on to, to make a massive success out of the BB-8 launch. You win further licensing deals, I understand, with Disney. And you raise a lot more capital as you shepherd Sphero from a consumer electronics business into an era of robot-based steamed education over the next few years. That's an incredible story, but I can't help but sense a tone of regret in your voice as you talk about the story. So I want to talk about this a little bit. Looking back at the decision to do this and how you did it over those 10 months Paul, is there something that sticks out specifically that you wish you'd done differently in how you build this partnership or how you manage the change that would have had a different or better long-term impact on, on Sphero as a business today? I think if I could go back in time, I would have done the almost impossible task, which was, I'm going to leave $50 million on the table. I'm just going to say no. So, you know, a lot of folks advised us, you know, we hired like experts on Star Wars and retail and toys. But the advice was, says, as quickly as the demand builds, the demand falls. Don't get caught with too much inventory. Okay, thank you for that advice. <laughs> we sold 980,000 units at those, in those first four months. And then we went on to sell another million units when we were finally done, which was sometime in 2018. The tough right decision would be to say... This is a great opportunity. It's also incredibly risky because it's tied to a movie and movies can't last forever. So we're going to pick a number of units. The demand in the market is for like 2 million units, like the crazy orders coming in. Literally, we had Walmart dropping it. People yelling at us and we're going like, I, we don't want to be in Walmart. We're too high priced and I can't handle their volume. And I don't like their policies in terms of how they, they price cut. It just didn't make sense for us to sell to Walmart, but they were radical bullying us, like calling SVPs at Disney and having those guys call us up and scream at us. It was an incredible amount of pressure to fulfill this demand for a product that was incredibly hard for us to just maintain inventory levels. And so we just felt like the demand was insatiable with so much external pressure. The smart toy companies that have a runner like that realized to stop is to always short the demand. But it would have required incredible restraint for as a CEO to say, 
demands for 2 million, we're making 300,000 units, no more. When we're done, we're done. Thank you very much. We'll collect our money at, as we pass go. And we wish you all the best. And I don't care what anyone else says, Disney, Walmart, Target, whoever. That would have been the right decision is just to look at the opportunity, realize it for what it is, make some good money off of it, and then go on to the next thing. But we chased the demand. We tried to fulfill every request. We tried to fill every PO, every phone call we got that someone wanted it, we would sell it. I didn't have it. And plus, we were raising money on the fact that there was insatiable demand. So I had the investor side of it. My board was incredibly supportive to do whatever. But when the demand fell off, we then had to deal with that. And I think we dealt with it pretty well. We developed a core skill set in catching falling knife, um, <laughs> which was really difficult. But that ultimately led to the change to uh, where we are today. We were clinging to the success that we wanted to, to replicate, and it just wasn't. Um, it wasn't there. Yeah. There's a fascinating point where you would try to predict your future based on your past and going, well, if we could just do 50% of what we did last year, we'll be fine. But what's the basis of that 50%, right? The basis yeah. is, is like, well, at least half of last year should be fine. <laughs> you know, that sounds ridiculous. But in reality, in this business, every year you start at zero. We had a lot of just like kind of reckoning of who are we? What are we all about? And the company has transformed dramatically from that why, right? That you asked at the beginning. Yeah. We're no longer there to entertain. We're, we're trying to find a higher purpose of just entertainment. Entertainment requires constant refreshing. And just our business doesn't have that ability to cycle that quickly yeah. uh, because it's so R&D heavy. So that's how we ended up in education. But you know, maybe that's a subject for another day. Paul, thanks for being so candid with some of the lessons learned and what you would have done differently. We now come to my favorite part of the podcast, which is our rapid fire section. I ask you a series of questions unrelated to your story of change, and you answered them in 30 seconds or less. How does that sound? Okay, let's do it. All right, here we go. You've indexed heavily on mentorship in your career. How should someone go about finding a mentor if they don't yet have a professional or personal network to look to? What can they offer someone like you in return to get you as a high quality mentor? Don't worry about what you give in return. Anyone that wants to be a mentor is doing it for whatever internal reasons they have. They're not expecting anything back. Don't spend any time worrying about it. How to find a great mentor? You got to go out and join groups that you're not part of and network. And in times of COVID, you're going to have to do it virtually and participate in meetups and tech gatherings, startup weekends and accelerators or whatever you can get involved with. You got to work it like a job. Makes sense. Paul, thinking back to your moment of change with the Disney company, what were you reading, be it a blog or a book that helped you manage this change at the time that you think is invaluable for a manager to read as they manage their own change? So I had a, a coach who uh, had me read the Lincoln biography called Team of Rivals by Doris Goodwin. And it's a fascinating look at Lincoln's presidency through the eyes of his cabinet. When you're running a company that's going through massive change, you're really managing your cabinet, your leadership team to run it for you. And how do you manage them because they're managing the business, you're not. And that was a really powerful read for me, just seeing how he did it because they didn't all get along. That guy had a lot of tough stuff to deal with. Yeah. You've touched on rain dance going public being a really painful experience. What have you learned from taking a company public in a tough financial environment that you think all managers should be thinking about heading into 2021 with their businesses? There's no substitute for profitability and cash flow. If you can get there, get there. Your opportunities expand dramatically when you can run your business profitably. 
focus on the fundamentals. Yeah. You've said that most people don't want to look at and believe in data, even though they say they do. What is the one most important piece of data you've looked at the most often as a manager to keep you grounded in reality? So every business has that one metric. What is that one metric? And really um, fixate on it. In the time of Disney, it was how many robots are getting turned on on a daily basis. We call them activations. Activations became this. You can develop a correlation between activations and sales and revenue. And it just everything trickled from there. It was a data point that could become a leading indicator. While everyone didn't think that was a true metric of the business, I knew it to be the, um, the one that told me when to stop the line when everyone else would have to wait another month for data. So find your key metric, understand its limitations, but understand the signal it's telling you and index heavily on that. Got a forward-looking metric that allows you to rely on your intuition to make changes ahead of time. And Paul, last question for you. What is your biggest piece of advice to a manager listening to this podcast who may be facing a seemingly unattainable plan or a large expectation of change, but does not have the authority or influence that you did as a CEO? If you have an idea that you think passionately about, start convincing those around you. Anyone can be a leader, especially if you are really great at building consensus. So if you want to get change in your organization and it's just you, you might be screaming into the wind. But if you can convince five or 10 or 15 of your colleagues, that's going to be heard. And a CEO does that as well. You got to build consensus on his team. You got to be the CEO of those around you, your colleagues, your friends, whoever else in the organization. Build consensus around an idea and then move it forward and gradually expand the envelope. Got it. Become really good at building consensus. Well, there you have it, Paul. You've been such a great inspiration to watch over the years, and it was a real honor having you on this podcast. I really can't wait to see what's next for you and Sphero in the years ahead. Thank you so much for making the time here. Thank you. That was Paul Weberian talking about the incredible story of change at Sphero. Thanks for listening to the Mavens of Change podcast. This episode was brought to you by Aria. The right workforce compensation can be a superpower, but getting compensation right is hard. Aria takes the guesswork and grunts work out of the design and management of workforce compensation. Visit ariaworks.com to learn more.